When you have a website as your main platform for selling, you have to make that website replace a physical experience. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to get a retailer to give you a shot at selling your products in their stores, what to look for when picking a manufacturer, and how to make your website replace the physical experience of shopping. Today, I'm joined by Leo Tropiano for Muggsy Jeans. Muggsy Jeans makes stylish men's jeans that are as comfortable as sweatpants and is a million-dollar company started in 2016 and based out of Chicago. Welcome, Leo. How's it going? Good, good. So you told me that the most important lesson that you've learned so far is to perfect the product and that you felt like you wasted a lot of time and money trying to sell what you would now consider prototypes. Tell us a little more about this. Like, How many prototypes do you feel like you went through before you got to the perfect product? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of one of those catch-22 things because while we wasted a lot of money and time with, you know, imperfect product that we launched to the public, that was also the best way we learned how to perfect it. But I think really, if I could like rephrase that, I would say don't launch like your full, don't do like a full-blown launch of a full product line until the product's perfected. So, you know, like an example with the jeans, maybe we started with a few hundred units in the early days. Maybe instead we should have just done tens, twenties, fifties of a units of a style instead of in the hundreds. So just kind of like minimize the risk. Yeah, that's, it was everything. So, you know, we launched, I think I quit my job in like 2015 to pursue this and naively thought I'd be like profitable, you know, within six months. Turned out to take almost like a year and a half before I really perfected the product and did a real launch. But yeah, I mean, once you get the right product, you will immediately notice that instead of it being an uphill battle, it just becomes more of a downhill and everything just goes smoothly and starts clicking and falling into place. Got it. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the big improvements that you made along the way between some of the initial early prototypes and what you consider now the perfect product? And how did you learn by making those improvements? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say early on, I'll, I'll skip a bit more background as to you know why I got this idea and wanted to start the company. But you know, for me, it was I went into the real world and I wanted to find uh, jeans that looked better. So I, I knew this the baggy clothes of the morning in college where it was time to just kind of drop them off at Salvation Army and upgrade. You know, it's kind of in the professional world, I needed to have uh, more appreciation for my appearance. So went out looking for jeans, couldn't find anything. And jeans are a little well, they were at the time uh, harder for me because I was a soccer guy. So I had you know, bigger legs, a bigger butt. So anything slimmer just became extremely uncomfortable and like intolerable. So I was kind of left with this choice of sacrificing comfort or style. And I thought it shouldn't have to be that way. So the initial concept behind the company was, well, if I were to solve a problem, I would say that it was to make a jean that was both comfortable and stylish. And so the early prototypes didn't, they kind of focused more on the style and they didn't quite meet the comfort aspect. And so I think it wasn't until I really nailed down the fit and, you know, worked with the factory to have come up with this proprietary denim. Uh, it wasn't until we had that and, you know, we started getting comments from people like, these are the most comfortable jeans I've ever worn, blah, 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 that kind of thing. That's when you knew like, okay, this is actually the solution for the problem. It wasn't, you know, a half solution as like our previous prototypes were. 
So you mentioned that you don't want to do a full-blown launch when you're just kind of testing the market, testing the product, but you should get out into the marketplace and get it into the hands of the customer so you can actually learn and learn how to improve the product to make it perfect. Can you talk a little about whether, what kind of launches then would you would you consider doing or maybe what you would recommend if you were to go back and kind of do it all over again? How do you get into the marketplace without making a big splash when you don't feel like you have the perfect product yet? Yeah, no, this is, it's, the most important thing is just get the product to your target audience as soon as you can. And that's when you'll learn the most and you'll learn what you have to tweak to perfect it. So for me, I kind of started with, we got samples of the genes, so kind of prototypes. And I started by showing my friends and family. And that was kind of a mistake because they'll never shoot it to you straight. You know, it's not until you talk to a real stranger that they'll just be like, no, nah, these suck. I'm not going to buy them. But <laughs> you tell friends and family and they'll be like, oh, yeah, this is cool. You, you know, I'll support you. And then, you know, you'd have some friends and family buy a pair. And then, you know, you'd see them out at the bar a couple of weeks later and they're not wearing them. And you could get the sense that like, oh, OK, they really just bought these because they were supporting me. So what I would say is, you know, get with the minimum viable product, get a few of them and just start selling to customers. I, I vividly remember the first time I really tried selling my jeans to customers and just the reactions and feedback you get from that alone immediately told me that I was, you know, I had to change the path and I was like in the wrong place at that time. Um, so yeah, minimum viable product and try actually selling to people, listen to their feedback, read between the lines of their like expressions and gestures. And you'll quickly learn that if they're not coming to you and like kind of begging to pay for it, you're not there yet. Where and how are you selling these early prototypes? Yeah, so early on, I would kind of go to every denim store in Chicago. And it's sad that most of them are, are no longer here. And I guess I'm partly to blame for that because the e-commerce space is kind of killing that physical store. I basically went to one of the better denim stores in the greater Chicago area and got in with the founder. I just kind of forced a meeting with him, told him what I was about. And it's funny because early on, he said, I can tell you this product isn't it but I can tell that you're going to get there kind of thing. So he kind of extended an olive branch to me and said, here, come in you know, next Saturday, bring your jeans, and you can just try and sell them to customers. I won't charge you for anything. Just set up shop, and I'll give you the opportunity to steal business from me to my own customers in my own store. And that's what I did. So I showed up with you know, 20, 30 pairs on a Saturday, their hottest day, and tried to sell it to customers. And you know, it's kind of like I said, immediately you just get the vibe from people when you're actually trying to sell them something, when you're actually telling, asking them to go into their wallet and give you cash, you can immediately tell if you're on the right track or not. That's a great way to get early sales and early feedback. Just go in person, go where the customers are already going, like going to these denim shops or jean shops. They're going to be interested in jeans, so it makes a lot of sense that you're able to get in there. Yep. So based on your experience, what do you find that retailers care about? What will make a retailer give you that kind of shot now that you look back on your experience? Yeah, it's... It's tough because even a lot has changed in the three or four years since that moment that I, I did that trunk show at the storefront on the Saturday. And we've since shifted the focus of the company totally away from kind of retail relationships and focused exclusively online. So I can't quite say so much anymore. But at the time, I think the reason that I got in with that store was the owner just kind of, he was just cool. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it beyond that. He just kind of saw what I was trying to do here. And he, I think he appreciated the ambition. And, you know, I kind of hounded his phone system to get in front of, of me going through a lot of different people in his organization to get to him. I think when I finally did, he, he 
had been aware of me just from people being like, hey, this Leo guy keeps calling you. And so finally, I was like, all right, I'll take the call. And instead, I just kind of went out there and met him one day. And uh, we just hit it off a bit. But yeah, he appreciated the ambition and what at the same time. Another thing I found from launching this company is to be amazed at how many people are willing and excited to help you. You're, I think they just kind of people latch on and are drawn to others who are enthusiastic and ambitious and energetic about something. So I, I think that would be my suggestion is just Go out there and just be yourself and, you know, show your passion for this product. And it's contagious and you'll find people that are, will be willing to help you along the way. Yeah. And I can imagine that most independent store owners are also entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial. They understand the kind of struggle. And I think if you're able to reach out to them, appeal to that, you know, don't go for a big box or big chain store. Like go for more of the independent stores that understand it as they see themselves in your shoes at one point. I think that certainly can help. Like that was the kind of person you approached. He was an entrepreneur. He understood the hustle. He respected it and wanted to give you your shot. So when you first started selling the jeans, it sounds like you went through a bunch of prototypes. You learned that there were, that the jeans weren't perfect. They had things you needed to perfect. What are some of the very, very first obstacles that you ran into when you first started to sell it? And how did you overcome those? Absolutely. So your question kind of reminded me of like an example that I think about a lot, and that's the founding of Reddit, you know, the website reddit.com. So for anyone who's unfamiliar, and I don't know the exact details, but I remember, you know, reading this years ago and it was inspiring, but the founders of Reddit kind of pitched to a an incubator their idea and the incubator hated it. <laughs> and they were like, this is a terrible idea, but we kind of believe in you guys. You know, you, we, we're sold on you, but not the product you came up with. And the incubator said to them, just go back home and just brainstorm this a bit and come back in like a week and just repitch us on a new idea. And that new idea eventually became Reddit. And they, I forget what their tagline is, but it's like the homepage of the internet or something. And so I thought that was like really inspiring to me because it just shows that if you're passionate and you know ambitious and eager, you'll just keep evolving until you figure something out because there's always problems that exist. And where there are problems, there are business opportunities. So for me, it was kind of like I'm selling these jeans. No one's really too enthusiastic. And it, like I said, it just kind of felt like an uphill battle, like every sale I'm like grinding for, you know, getting attention in the press. You're just like, it would just drive me mad at how many people you have to reach out to and the dead ends. But, you know, once you kind of read between the lines, get that customer feedback, fix the product, it all just clicks. You know, even I think a bigger hurdle for me in the early days was finding a supplier, like a manufacturer that aligned with us. And that was kind of the biggest thing for me. So after that trunk show I did at that store, I kind of went back to the manufacturer and said, hey, we're off. Something's wrong. We need to change to more like this. And they kind of pushed back on it. And so at that moment, I knew, okay, they're not aligned with me. They're not going to be a good partner. I need to move on. So I kind of mentioned before that I quit my job. And it took like a year and a half before I launched the real product. And that year and a half, I really spent just kind of doing R&D. And the bulk of that was just finding the right factory working with them to get the right fabric and fit and just perfecting the product. And uh, yeah, once I found the right partner from a supplier and manufacturer standpoint, it just was smooth sailing. Got it. So you mentioned that you quit your day job to jump into this full time. What did you feel like you gained from that? Like, what did you feel like you gained from being able to focus on this full time versus just doing it on the side? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'd been working on it on the side. So, you know, we launched, I consider our launch fall 2016. So a little over two years ago at the time of this recording, quit my job summer of 2015. But I'd been working on it pretty much from day one when I got into the real world. So like dating myself a bit, but that was like 2011, 2012. So even though we've only had two years under the company, this has been like a seven or eight year project for me. So I started by doing it on the side and 
just countless nights of staying up till like super late, just figuring this out because I had a demanding day job. But it got to the point where I realized that if you didn't quit and kind of focus exclusively on it, and I even call it just removing the safety net of the safety of that day job, it just kind of puts you in a, bats you in a corner and forces you to focus and make it work. And at the time, it was like insane, right? It was the most insane decision ever. And you know, family and friends are just kind of blown away. Just really, you're going to quit your like very comfortable and successful day job to just pursue this dream of jeans. But I just kind of knew deep down that if I didn't kind of focus exclusively on this, it was never going to get off the ground. It was kind of one or the other. And that might not be for everyone. That might not be the case. And there are definitely companies where people build them on the side. I think it definitely takes longer. If I hadn't quit the day job, I think, I don't even know if we'd be here yet. But that year and a half, it was just the catalyst, very expedited, uh, getting to the right product. But yeah, and, and I'd seen other companies who, where the founders had had their day jobs and they were doing this on the side and they really wanted it to work. But at the same time, they, they had that safety net and they weren't really giving their all. And eventually those companies went under. So uh, I think it's a no-brainer. I think you have to plan for it and make sure you're prepared. But uh, yeah, that exclusive focus is is everything. What did you feel like you started doing differently with that safety net removed that you never did in the previous years while you're doing it on the side? Yeah, it's just tough when you have a nine to five. Just getting stuff done for the side hustle is really hard. Because and my day job was like super demanding. You know, I'd often work probably on average it was like seventy hours a week, but you know, more in the 100 hours per week for a good amount of the year. So super crazy and just couldn't get anything done. You know, it's, it involves a lot of calling people during their normal work hours and just correspondence during that time. So that was definitely a big one. Um, yeah. Wow, 7,200 hours. That's, that's extreme. Like you're basically doing two jobs plus this on the side with whatever you know, time you had left. So you mentioned that if someone were to do this, you'd have to have to have a plan and prepare. What does this mean? Does that mean you need to save up a lot of money? Like what else do you need to do to make sure you kind of hit the ground running? Yeah, I mean, it was crazy enough to just quit your job and pursue this ridiculous dream. But uh, it, it wasn't, I don't view it as like a stupid decision. It was very calculated, but even though it was insane. So for me, I kind of planned the date I was going to quit. I saved enough money to kind of last me for, you know, six months to a year. I had health insurance plans because I knew I was going to get married in time for, you know, quitting, that kind of stuff. Did you have experience creating apparel or jeans besides what you're doing for Muggsy? Or did you just kind of learn as you went with that business? Yeah, I had no apparel experience. I was more in like the finance consulting world. So, you know, from when I got the idea, my first the first thing I did and set out to do was just meet everyone I could in the industry. And that ranged from owners of stores, owners of brands to college students who are studying fashion and apparel. So it's just kind of learning as much as you can and meeting as many people as you can. I like that you didn't just decide to try to study this on your own independently, but you went to meet people in the industry. You met people that are working or plan to work in the space. Did you kind of have like an intention when you were going to meet them? Like, How did you know how to make the best use of your time when meeting with these experts? It was more, I, I kind of had the idea for the product and there were all these questions I had that I knew it would take to get to the prototype stage. So it's just kind of, you know, depending on who I met and who I was introduced to, just choose the questions and then eventually all of them were answered. And um, yeah, like I pointed to earlier, that, that uh, ambition is really contagious and that enthusiasm. So you'd meet one person and they'd give you an answer that was great. And then they'd be like, and you know what, uh, you should meet so-and-so too, because they can probably help you in this area. And then like next thing you know, you just get passed along the chain and you have this huge network and just like this wealth of knowledge from you know, essentially experts. 
So you had to change manufacturers and try to find someone that understood more where you were going and what you wanted to do, kind of essentially be more agile and more adaptable, more flexible, able to switch or change things up based on the feedback that you were getting. How did you make sure that the next time around that you were able to find the right partner? What kind of questions were you asking? How did you make sure it would be a good fit? Yeah, it's really tough. It's kind of like hiring an employee. I feel like you don't really know until you're working with them. But for me, I definitely learned early on that you should trust your gut because I immediately could tell, you know, if my my gut reaction was saying, hey, I think this is going to work or it's not, it it tended to be right much more than like my logical brain trying to analyze would this work. So that's like a really imprecise and kind of terrible answer. But early on, it's just, yeah, just kind of the gut check. But even beyond that, just, you know, try working with people and you'll learn pretty fast if it's going to work or not. And if you can take a low risk with that then that's definitely the best way to go about it. When you look back now, were there certain red flags from the previous manufacturers or patterns that you start to see in the new partners that you've brought on that you try to look for when you look for a partner with someone else or some other company? Yeah, I would say you can see that they share the enthusiasm with you. So kind of looking back at my first manufacturer, there were a lot of red flags. Like They would send me samples that were way off. And when I would go back to them and say, hey, these aren't even close to right, You'd be like, oh, well, you know, send us your changes and we'll charge you again for the next round. It's like, well, you know, you weren't even close. So why do I have to pay again? So I kind of got the feeling, hey, you're kind of just trying to squeeze money from this. And uh, even just other stuff like would call them and email and they wouldn't respond for days or sometimes weeks. And you're just kind of left in the dark, like waiting around. I'd say communication is always a really easy way to filter out the bad. You know, if someone's a bad communicator. And when they're trying to get your business, they're definitely not going to be good when they already have your business. Yeah, that, that was kind of the big one to me. Got it. You said to me that it's all about focus and you want to focus exclusively on the problem you're trying to solve and the audience you're trying to solve it for. How would you describe the problem that you're trying to solve with Muggsy Jeans? Yeah, so early on, I experienced the problem. So it was great because since I was the target audience, I knew exactly what I wanted. Um, so it was a little lucky there. It's, I think it's a bit harder to make a product for someone else. But at the same time, I also knew that my friend group and greater network were also the target audience, people that were similar to me. So you know, it was, it was easy to just kind of be like, hey, man, can I pick your brain? You know, <laughs> or go out, take a friend out to drinks and just, you know, ask him a few questions, show him a few things and just learn from, from them. But uh Yeah, I just kind of started super small, you know, me and my friend group. Let me solve this problem for us. And if I can solve it for us, I know it's going to work for everyone else. Got it. Did the focus of the problem that you're trying to solve evolve as the business grew? Or did you always have the same kind of focus from the very beginning? I'd say it was the same problem, but I don't think I fully understood the problem until I just kind of got more into the weeds of it. So I initially probably thought like, hey, I want comfortable and stylish jeans. And I think early on, we focused more on the style aspect instead of the comfort. And, you know, eventually I kind of learned, oh, comfort is kind of more key. And plus, if you have comfortable jeans, you can make them more stylish and people don't care as much because they're comfortable. So yeah, I think it was just more my understanding of the problem, which just evolved over the course of me prototyping and talking to all those friends that were my target audience. What were they saying to you that made you switch focus? Because I could imagine a business going years and years and years focused on the stylish side, even though they could make more headway by switching to comfort. And you obviously caught this early on and changed course and focused more on the comfort side. But what did you recognize in the way that customers are talking to you in the marketplace that made you realize that the focus should be on comfort more than on style? 
I think the main thing for me was I would try and get these jeans on a friend and he would just be like, man, I, I look good in these, I agree, but oh man, they're so uncomfortable. I can't wear these. <laughs> Imagine if I was trying to sit in these, like, I couldn't, I can barely stand or walk in them. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, just that listening to that honest feedback that they're giving. And like I said, with friends and family, you kind of have to read between the lines a little more, kind of like we said, where, you know, I'd, I'd sell a pair of jeans or give a pair of jeans to a friend. And then a few weeks later, we'd be out at the bar and you wouldn't be wearing them. It's like, okay, well, he really didn't love them then if he went right back to his old crappy jeans. And the jeans that he told me were crappy, you know, a few weeks before when we were brainstorming the problem. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. So you said to me that you want to nail down your target audience as specific as possible, then you market to that specific audience digitally and physically. Let's start off with narrowing down your target audience. I think a lot of entrepreneurs want to grow a big company, so they kind of throw their nets wide and try to service as many people as possible. But you're saying narrow down, focus on a specific audience. Can you tell us a little bit more about this exercise you went through? Like what was your audience initially, and then what was the result of narrowing it down? Yeah, absolutely. So... I always tell our team, like, sniper, not shotgun. Eventually, we're going to have to move to a shotgun and then maybe, like, a rocket launcher, not to be like a, I'll give a morbid example, but, you know, really just focus on who the core audience is and boil it down as much as you can in the early days because, you know, it's a lot easier to sell something to a group of people that's smaller and all in the same place and all like-minded and have the same interests than it is to try and sell to you know, varying groups of people. And then now you have to spread your marketing budget thinner. Um, whereas if you can just own this one group, it's easier to then just expand to, you know, kind of groups that are just similar to them. And then next thing you know, you have a much wider audience. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I like that. I think that makes sense because you got to kind of get a foothold, right? Like if you're trying to be everywhere, then you fade into the background. But if you can really dominate a small, small audience, you have a foothold and you basically have social proof to expand a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left and to grow that group. But if you start off with both of, of servicing everyone from the beginning, then you have less of a chance of getting a foothold and establishing yourself somewhere. And I think that that being able to establish yourself makes a big difference in getting other people to be willing to adopt and try a new product or try a new brand out. And actually, I have a, a that reminded me of a uh, sorry that reminded me of a, a good example or like exercise I learned early on. So early on, one of the mentors I found was kind of a branding expert, and he told me he kind of explained this sniper versus shotgun approach to me early on. And he said, go home and just write like as many pages as you can about this target audience and picture him as one person. Where is he going on the weekends? What's his job? You know, how does he get to work? What does he do when he gets home? What kind of food does he eat? Like literally just write this person's biography, this imaginative person that you envision as embodying your entire target target audience. And that was really insightful because you learn everything about this person and then you know where they are and how they're influenced and then marketing becomes a lot easier when you just fully have that understanding yeah i think this the question of this begs is what if that person doesn't exist like how do you test to see if that person even exists because you could spend years trying to reach this person's avatar that you've created but they might not exist did you ever have that fear and how, how do you test to see if that avatar is a real person or a real group yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was a little easier because kind of like I said, I focused on me and my friend group. So I knew they existed. I knew there were, you know, I'm not <laughs> too special of a guy. So there are tons of me out there. There are tons of people that would fit 
into this category. And for me, I, I just kind of said, hey, it's like 24 to 35 year olds, probably an urbanite, probably with a white collar job. Um, and you, you can just kind of immediately know that that person does exist. And I feel like if you don't know if that avatar exists, then you don't have a full understanding of the problem because that you're trying to solve because you have to know who the person is that ha- is experiencing this, pro- this problem in order to solve it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one, but I guess I could also kind of expand on that and just say, start marketing, do this exercise, try and figure out who this person is, where they are, market to them, and you'll quickly learn, you know, whether they exist or not if, based on whether the marketing is a success. Got it. So let's talk about the second half of your point, which again is to narrow down your audience and then market to them where they are digitally and physically. So let's talk about the physical side first. What do you do in terms of that kind of marketing? What's the strategy there? So similar to that story where I went to that one denim store in the greater Chicago area and I tried selling there. Again, it was just when I wrote these pages based on who this target audience is, I'd say, you know, where will they be in Chicago at a point where they're interested in buying jeans? So it's a little easier because like obviously a jeans store, you know, (laughs) but uh, yeah, physically just get where they are. Like other examples could be, okay, I'm in Chicago. And one of the main things I found when I did that exercise is that our guy loves sports. He's playing sports, he's watching sports, all of it. So, you know, maybe in Chicago, I can find the intramural sport leagues, give them a ring. Can I set up a trunk show at one of the events, uh, one of the game nights? Can I try and sell jeans to people? Can I give them discount codes and, you know, cards and show them the jeans, that kind of thing. Got it. What about digitally then? What's the strategy to market online? Yeah. So the great thing about the digital stuff is you can do it tomorrow and you can do it for almost nothing. You know, I think the minimum spend on Instagram or Facebook is like five bucks a day. So obviously that can build up quickly, but at the same time, that's a really cheap experiment. When you think of like 50 years ago, you'd have to like spend thousands of dollars on a billboard to know if it's working. But yeah, I mean, and Instagram, you you can target down to people so like finally, it's incredible. (laughs) You know, the things that they know about people that you can kind of filter out. So yeah, digitally, that's probably the first thing I would do is go to like Facebook and Google and really hone in on the on the person and the audience. And what's cool is Facebook will also like tell you, hey, here's the size of this audience. And they'll even say we suggest you open it up a little or whatever. Even beyond that, though, kind of like I said, my audience, my guy, he's into sports. So he's probably reading sports blogs and and playing fantasy football or something. So he's probably trying to figure out, you know, what player is hot this week. So for me, early on, it was just, okay, let's find out what blogs he's going to and let's market on them. Can you describe some of the most effective ads that you had running early on? Like, what were you targeting? What did the ads look like? Yeah, so the first one, I remember really distinctly, it was kind of like, how do I say this? In 2015, when I quit my job and was kind of trying to sell prototypes, you know, we had a certain number of sales, let's say it was X. And then, you know, flash forward a year when I launched the new product, November 2016, the first real major win we had was one of those ads. And we had more than X sales. So like, we did more sales in that one day from that one ad than we did in the entire previous year. Again, just like, immediate validation. And what was great about that ad is I knew my audience was there. Uh, it was like the site that we advertised on. You know, sites can give you, it's called like a media kit. You know, they have a breakdown of their demographics. They know exactly what kind of person is coming there. So before I went into this, I'd seen the media kit. I saw the demographic had perfectly aligned with my guy. I knew they were there. And then that, so that was kind of like the first part. And the second part is, okay, how can I tell them that this product is solving a problem they have. So for us, like our big differentiator is this like crazy stretch, ridiculous comfort. 
So how can I show that in an image or like a, a GIF? And so for us, we just have this, I launched this image of me kind of pulling the leg of the jeans out as far as I could to show like insane stretch of these jeans. And then the other leg looked normal. So you could see like, hey, these look like normal jeans, but you know, they can do that. And uh, yeah, it just exploded, man. So again, just I knew my audience was there and I knew I showed them that this was a product that solved the problem they were experiencing. Got it. So when you're creating ads and strategies today, is that the same approach where you want to show the problem that you're solving or has it evolved now the company's larger and the customer base is larger? Yeah, no, it's, it's very much still similar. And I think you have to keep in mind that people are inundated with ads more than ever nowadays. You know, you can't go three seconds without seeing an ad somewhere if you're on your phone. So you have to make noise and get their attention right out of the gate. So we do a lot of stuff that says, check this out. This is a problem you're having. This is the solution in as short and you know, direct as a way as you can. Got it. So what about PR? Because I see here you've been featured in big publications like Men's Health, Barstool Sports, Esquire, BuzzFeed, Thrillist. How did you get featured in those publications? That's another good example of finding the right partner. So another early mistake and kind of disasters of mine were working with PR people. So I think we went through four and the first four literally had no results. It was just a total, total loss and failure. But when we found that fifth PR person who we still work with today, it just exploded. And, and she kind of saw the vision. She understood what we're trying to do. And immediately we're getting features in you know, Men's Health and Esquire and all this stuff. So again, just like finding the right partners who understand what you're doing and uh, believe in your vision. When did you decide to hire someone to help with PR? What stage in the business were you at where you realized that this would be a good investment of your time and capital? Yeah, this is the toughest question because at some point you're going to have to kind of take the leap and you say, my product's good. Now I need to kind of hand some work off to other people who know what they're doing to get it out there. And to me, marketing PR was like the first most obvious one. I kind of, I was doing the digital stuff myself as far as, you know, the Facebook, Insta and like social ads. But I knew that, you know, if I tried PR on my own, it would just be a miserable failure and a waste of my time. So why did you feel that way? Why did you feel like that one was the most important one to hand off to an, an expert or consultant? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like you create a list of everything that needs to, to happen in order for this to be a success and just start tackling what's at the top. And, you know, for most businesses early on, that's exposure, getting people to know who you are and what you do. So PR and marketing is often the first place you'll start. And another kind of warning I would give people is avoid agencies as much as you can early on because they'll just charge so much more and you'll just you won't have as much like as intimate of a relationship. Whereas with the freelancers that I use in the early days and, and still work with, uh, you know, it's much easier to get you know direct attention and just more value for your money. When you work with a PR freelancer or consultant, what's the working relationship like? What's your involvement? What do they need from you to, to succeed? Early on, it's a lot, right? Because they kind of have to download everything that's in my brain and all my knowledge of this company and this product and uh, have to like understand it as well as I do. So, I mean, when I, when you say outsourcing and working with freelancers, it's not like it will be much less work, especially early on, because like I said, you have to kind of get this vision concrete in someone else's eyes, but it's just more the carrying out of the work. So you, you kind of change your focus from doing the work to guiding the work. Um, and yeah, they'll <laughs> leave it to the experts when you have to. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about the site itself, the online store. I love the design. Was this done in-house? 
It actually was. Yeah, we, we hired a director of marketing this past year, and he also happens to be a killer website programmer. Um, and it made an incredible difference. So just kind of doing a rehaul of the website and you know making it catch up with the times and kind of what the standard is for you know e-commerce sites nowadays had a tremendous impact on our like conversions, sales, everything. Is the theme you're using, is that built from scratch or did you guys uh, use a paid or free theme? If I remember right, base foundation of this site as it is now definitely uses a theme, but it's been like dramatically altered. When you went through this overhaul, what were some of the big changes there that you guys decided to consciously make to that made a big difference in conversion rates or sales? Yeah, absolutely. So when you have a website as your main platform for selling, you have to make that website replace a physical experience. And so for jeans, you know, typically a, a guy would buy jeans by going to a store, trying them on, looking in the mirror. You can't do that online. And that makes clothes shopping, clothing shopping online very difficult. So for us, it was just letting the use of our website show you as much as it can about how these jeans are going to fit, feel, look, all that stuff. And one example is we launched like a 360 product view. So you can just kind of scroll across a picture and see every angle of the jeans um, and just gives you a really good idea of what they look like and, you know, how they'll feel. Is that your favorite part of the site? Yeah, that's probably my favorite. <laughs> you Because, know, you know, like I said, just showing people what these jeans are all about, it, it's really hard just on like a computer screen. So that 360 product image and, you know, it, it for those who can't see it, which is everyone, um, <laughs> it's just like a person standing and it kind of rotates them. But it even has them do a couple of different poses and stretching the jeans. So you can really just get like an immediate feel for what the jeans are about. So yeah, that, that's definitely my favorite upgrade to the site that we did. What about Shopify apps or other apps to help run the business? Yeah, definitely. So a few of the bigger ones, well, one that we just found that I'm really excited about is uh, inventory planning app. So it kind of tracks your sales by size and style. Um, and it tells you, hey, you're going to sell out of this SKU number in this many days. And when you do, you're going to lose this much money. So we're, we're kind of rolling that one out now. But when it's like fully functioning, it's going to be major because that is like one of the hardest things that we have to do. I'd say probably the hardest thing at this point is just guessing inventory levels and all that. Another is like we have an exchange program we use. So when a customer wants to exchange jeans, Shopify's platform doesn't really have a great answer for that, but this exchange app really just simplifies it for us. So just a, a few little things like that just have a, a really major impact. That's called Exchange It? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Got it, cool. So let's talk about the operations and like how big is the team that works at Muggsy Jeans today? Yeah, we have a, a few employees and we have a lot of freelancers. I'm a big proponent of freelancers because you can get expertise without having to take on like a, a full-time you know, employee responsibility, which comes with a lot of headaches, even just from like a regulation and like filing standpoint. Um, and that was something I was not prepared for. You kind of said, I was like, hey, I'm going to hire someone. And then like, oh my God, I have to like do this and reach out to OSHA and like the, you know, withdraw this and that and file this and that. And it's crazy. So uh, we have a we have the whole team of like freelancers that focus on very specific things and uh, just really kind of knock those out of the park. What about communication and management between all the team members? Because it sounds like a lot of freelancers. How do you guys stay in touch when you're working on a new product launch or working on a new project together? Yeah, that's that's tough. And that's something we've definitely been bad at in the past. And you know, kind of working with the freelancers more recently, we've learned that. A lot of them sometimes feel in the dark or, hey, we didn't know about that. And if we had, we probably would have changed this and that. So it's become much more like include everyone on everything. 
So like any email you send out, CC the whole team. And if it doesn't apply to them, you know, they'll just X out of it and ignore it. But at least they'll have the opportunity to read it and, uh, you know, kind of get involved if they need to. Got it. So thank you so much for your time, Leo. So MugsyGenius.com is the website. I'll leave you with this question. What do you think needs to happen for you this year to consider 2019 a success? I would say just continuing to build the momentum. So we've kind of got the rocket off the ground and now it's just, let's keep it going, you know, just keep pursuing our our goals and, and aligning with the forecast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Leo. Cool. Thanks so much, Aaron. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.